What's up, everybody? Eric here with Mixtapes, and we got another great show for you today. My guest has been in the music biz for quite some time, starting off with CBS Records in 1988 as a college rep. He worked for CBS, Sony, MCA, Geff, and Interscope, did some indie marketing and label stuff. Um, he's been in book publishing for the last 11 years, and he is probably one of my favorite podcast co-hosts of the DLR Podcast, which is one of my, my favorite. you got to check out that podcast if you get a chance with... Uh, my buddy Darren is a, the other co-host of that show. Welcome to the show today, Mr. Steve Roth. How are you doing today, sir? Good, Eric. How are you doing, man? Thanks for I'm, having me on. I'm doing great, man. I'm really looking forward to picking your brain today and having a fun conversation. Uh, first question I always ask everybody is, do you remember your first music memory that kind of wanted to get you into music, you know, like where you, you, know, where you took music? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. My first music memory was way before I ever wanted to get into the ever before I want to get into the music biz, but somewhere around high school, um, it, the one for the first memory, there wasn't one cohesive memory. It just like, I mean, I'm a bit older. I graduated high school in 85 and, um, you know, MTV was just booming right then. And, um, I kind of was tired of classic rock radio. I mean, I, by that point I had heard Freebird and Stairway to Heaven too many times to count with a classic rock radio station where I grew up in Long Island. And, um, you know, it was, a I was really into the visual stuff and I remember jump came on Van Halen, you know, I saw that video and I was a big Dave fan and, 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 but, you know, up until really then I maybe around 82, I mean, Van Halen did not have a lot of videos right it, before, you know, they really, I mean, they, what was the video for pretty woman that was banned. So this is a band that I visually, I was always appealed, appealed to me, especially Dave. And, but I only saw it in hit parader and Kerrang and circus, you know, yeah. and all of a sudden here's this guy with the tasseled hair and Eddie with the grin. And I'm just like, that's it, man. I want to be them. And I never had the musical talent. <laughs> so, and, but I really did get interested in the business side. So it was, it was MTV and just everything that was happening all at one time. I, I was listening to, I remember listening, I listened back again to it because I really enjoyed it. That episode you did with my co-host Darren at the DLR cast. And I know you, you guys were talking about MTV for a little bit and MTV, I can't denigrate it back then, man, because I found more new music through MTV than I did on the radio up until about 87 or so, 80, 86 was mid, mid 80s till I went away to college. No, you're totally right, man. I mean, that's that was the the gateway to a lot of other bands. You know, I mean, I, we grew up sort of close together. I grew up in New Jersey. So okay. I, rem I remember the classic rock stations in New Jersey and there wasn't they weren't. Play, there wasn't a lot of good radio stations playing newer stuff, right? right? For the most part, right? So I remember WSOU is where I found a lot of my metal as a kid. Oh um, yeah, you right know, on. great, great station. And but we had the same memory because I started playing guitar because of Eddie from the Jump video. I saw wow. that video and I was like, that is the coolest dude. Like yeah. this band. And you're right, the visual part of Van Halen. I mean, MTV kind of hurt. I think the bands that didn't visually look good, but I think it upped the game on a lot of bands too where they had to think about more of the visual and it created yeah. more of the, the, you know, more of a, not just the, the audio part, but the visual part to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it brings me back. To, I was just thinking too, and I'll probably harken back to this conversation you had, cause I really enjoyed it, but I can't remember whether it was you or Darren, you had a, you guys were talking about those bands that just didn't, you had one of you guys had, it was it you had a term for those bands that just didn't make that kind of jump over to the video side of things because uh, musically they might not have had it or 
a lot of bands certainly did have it, I thought, and but just visually it wasn't there or that time was kind of, you know, their time was on the downslide a little bit at the same time as you really needed to be visual. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think of uh, I think I don't know if we talked about in that episode, uh, but I remember talking about the Billy Squire video. Yes, exactly. Oh, <laughs> Which man. Is- you know, I can remember I can remember watching that. Um, uh, oh, now I'm spaced on the title, but the, the satin video that killed his career, unfortunately. Yeah. And I was a big Squire fan. I actually liked the records after those records. And we were all with a group of, we were with a group of people drinking beers and. I don't remember the guy who said it, but he said a real denigrating word. Sure. <laughs> and he saw Squire get up there. Squire's, Squire's going beep, you know, and it was like, and even then I knew, I mean, imaging wise, it was just like, oh man, the dancing stuff. This is, this guy's a rocker. What the hell's going on? What is he doing? Right. You're so, you're so right, man. And, and, and MTV definitely made or, or broke people too. I mean, I think of the winger thing. Where, oh, where, where, yeah. you know, where Stewart from Beavis and Buttheads wearing the winger t-shirt and then. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's other factors going into that at the same time. I got to ask you a question. Did you dive into playing an instrument um, or were you were just like, I know I'm just I just that's not my path or I one of my big regrets is I wish I had at the time. I just I, I, my mom was a piano teacher. We had two pianos in the house. Uh, I'm very percussive. I kind of self-taught drums a little bit. I didn't start playing guitar until my 20s, mid to, mid to late 20s. Um, barely basement bar band proficient, you know, right. but I, I never really did. I look back and how many people uh, that we know that maybe you, you yourself and so many people just because you saw Eddie dove into it at the time when you were most able to, you know, to spend the time at it. Right. And really woodshed and just like dive into it and be so influenced. And that's in your teen years, just like a generation before us saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, everybody went out and bought guitars. Right. Oh, absolutely. And that's a big regret for me that I never was really interested in. I was, I was certainly into so into music and I just life and school and a million other things, girls. I mean, I should have picked up a guitar or at least started playing piano or something. Cause I do have some musical proclivities, but yeah, no, I mean, it never got, it, 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 it fueled my interest in the business more than it did uh, doing anything musically. And yet I used to love to write lyrics. I did sing in a band for a bit. I love the collaborative process to write songs with people. I hear, you know, I can have a whole thing in my head. I just can't put it out there on guitar let's say you know so right right so you get the other person that can for sure right and and like all the great a lot of the great artists there's that yin yang you know there are is you know i mean you think of you know joe perry stephen tyler you know roth and and eddie like there's that there's that combo how did you get into the biz like because you you got in the game pretty early so like what, what was the foot in the door to get in well i'll tell you it um I just knew I wanted to do something in the record business. And in 87, I went to, I went to Connecticut uh, to go to school. I grew up in Long Island. And it's funny because I went to the uh, university of New Haven and the, probably the biggest re- I've had to get out of Long Island. New York's got a great university system, but I want to go to Connecticut because all I ever listened to was 99 rock WPLR, the rock station, because they played Newark rock stuff. I mean, you know, not just the stuff that we were, I was getting all tired of. And I was just really enamored with Connecticut. And I drove up to Connecticut. They had a great campus radio station. I, I transferred there from community college and I was like, just so really into the music business. I used to go to my library uh, in high school and college to read billboard magazine. Cause I got billboard. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just really interested in what went on behind the scenes. And I ended up 
Um, and I it also I was really interested in recording and things like that too, and just the process of it all and what you don't see. And in 88, uh, 87 or 88, I think it was 88. I think it was, I was flipping through Rolling Stone magazine. They had a big article on the CBS records, college marketing department. And I went, that's what I got to do. Nice. And the next day I got in my car, drove down to New York city and walked into 51 West 57th street, black rock CBS records and ended up going to the college department and <laughs> they needed somebody in Connecticut and I got hired. Wow. And I tell, this is really true. I was thrilled. I wanted to go to CBS records because they were, I was my number one goal because next to, Right above Kiss, Cheap Trick, and a bunch of other uh, Kiss and Van Halen and a bunch of other bands is Cheap Trick for me. I'm a huge, huge fan. Um, you know, they were one of those bands that didn't get into the '80s. In a, you know, but they were going nowhere basically for the most part until '88. But they had a big comeback with Lap of Luxury, and but Epic Records was on CBS Records, was under CBS Records. I knew that address by heart, man. 51 West 57th Street, you know, so cool. and and so. You know, I was thinking back today, thinking ahead back our conversation. I mean, I was a college marketing rep. So my job was to go put posters up in record stores, of which Connecticut had a, 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 some really, really good ones. And then I also had to deliver music and try to get airplane campus for college radio stations. And college radio stations were playing alternative music like you would expect it to play, whether it was REM or, you know, Depeche Mode, whatever it was. And the funny thing was, I never really liked a lot of that music. It wasn't until a lot later. I loved, you know, the year before in 87, me and my roommates, we were jamming to what came out fall of 87? White Snake. White Snake. Guns, yep. and Guns and Roses. Roses. Yep. I mean, uh, uh, bon LA Guns, Faster Pussycat. Yeah, Kiss yeah. Crazy Nights. And so, and then the next year, I'm hawking Toad the Wet Sprocket, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> which excuse me, which I ended up really liking a lot of that stuff. For me, the song is the key. I was never really into jam bands. My attention span is maybe four and a half minutes long. Okay. Verse, verse, hook, chorus, you know, get to a great bridge. And so I grew up on 70s pop and I love power pop and rock. And that's why I got into uh that's really what fueled my love for Cheap Trick and so many other bands like that. And and um, so yeah, that's how it, it all started. And and um I ended up getting hired after graduation and but and i think back if i had I, had i got a flat tire on my way down to in my beat up toyota corolla on my way down to new york city who I knows mean, who knows who where knows, you're right at, right but it were, was, yeah were you um were you djing also in college were you doing i really really wanted to i mean that's one of the cool things about podcasting because if i if if i if there was among the many other things i wish i'd done i would love to have been a morning show host and sure. so podcasting is fun because it's, I, it's creative. I love being creative. I had my own podcast for a while, which is, that's another conversation. It can be very difficult to do as you know, as a sole proprietor, I'm sure, sure, pod, sure. doing a podcast, it's, it's helps to have a co-host and also a great niche, which I did not have. Um, and, um, so, but no, I was not, I, I never got a foot in the door in the radio station. I was a newsreader. I'd run down at three o'clock and rip the AP news off the wire. Um, I, they just, were so filled up with people and that station at the time WNHU was pretty notable on the East coast and especially in new England for being, having a really strong uh, signal number one, but also to have uh, just, it was programmed really well for college station and, and um, uh, they had a lot of uh, long running shows from alumni and different people there. So 
Never, never got on the air as a DJ, unfortunately. I've got my FCC, got my FCC radio license, a little yellow card in my wallet I carried for 20 years, but no, I've never. But not, and it's funny too, because, you know, back then DJs had a lot more freedom, which was always fun, you know, because you look to your DJ really to be almost like your guy. I look at it this way. It's, it's the, it's the, the record store guy and the DJ. Yeah. And, and MTV, right? Those were the three where it was like they could kind of put you in a direction of, oh, you like this? Well, if you like this, you'll probably like this. Or, you know, like I said, listen to WSOU when I was a kid. Like, you know, they're playing Slayer at three in the afternoon. The first yeah. time I heard Slayer, I was like, whoa, this is like scary. <laughs> you yeah. know, or like you know. certain bands I never heard before. Certain so are like, you know, hearing like um, a Fleetwood Mac tune not being sung by Stevie Nicks or, or you right. know. Christine McVeigh, you know, rest in peace. And you start realizing, wow, so there's a Fleetwood Mac before Fleetwood Mac, essentially, right? You know, the Peter right. Green stuff, right? And you, you just start to get that education, I think, which is, you know, I miss with radio. Yeah, nowadays. it's funny. I got an anecdote on Fleetwood Mac, which was kind of, uh, which kind of got me into the music business. Uh, but I got to tell you, I'll, speaking of one of my first, le- one of the first lessons I learned as far as how things worked in radio was, um, was through my local radio station, actually, that the D the, probably around the eighties, it probably started happening. I think where the DJs were less in control. Right. And so I used to call my local radio station, classic rock station, WRCN for them to play a track, any song off of what was cheap tricks, then album, next position, please. I saw the video once on MTV. I can't take it. A great song. The record went nowhere. Didn't really get any promotional push from Epic. I called all the time until literally the nighttime DJs call time. He's like, do you live in town? I said, yeah. He said, come on down, man. I want to show you the station and just, you know, chat. let's chat. It's, it's, it's quiet. Down. Went down there at midnight and he said, listen, you're always calling and asking for these songs. He goes, I can't control. He goes, most of the time, it's not my choice what to play. He goes, they give me a bunch of records I'm allowed to play, or I can't play with the record. He basically told me, you know, I have to play with the record for the most part, a percentage of records that the record labels pitching. He goes, and cheap tricks, not in it, man. And I was like, Whoa, I was like, this is how it really works, you know, and I, and then he gave you a stack of records and uh, that was really cool. And uh, a bunch of looking back, a bunch of records that weren't a priority, never got airplay either back then, like triumph surveillance, I remember. And um, a couple other, um, a couple other albums. God, I remember never heard on that station either at the time. So yeah, that was like the first lesson that, um, that, you know, FM radio 70s it was about the DJs I mean you know the bathroom break song was Freebird right because right right or the smoke nine, break right <laughs> right it was not exactly it was nine minutes or whatever so, and, um, so true so true yeah uh, let me ask you this because you, you talked about lessons right and and right. I want to dive into the the part of working at a label so what were some of the hats that you wore working at some of the labels that you worked at um well before I worked uh at labels i worked for essentially distribution so cbs records later became sony in 1990 and so under there was primarily epic and columbia and then some subsidiary labels and it was a really good time because 80s and into 90s cd sales just exploded everybody's getting cd players there wasn't a mall around that didn't have at least one if not two record stores you had tower records growing um and um and then you know the mass merchant companies like tower and wall uh targeted walmart in fact i moved to minnesota in 94 but before then growing up on the east coast i had never seen a best buy or a walmart store they just weren't out there then right there was a lot of regional chains as you you probably remember growing up from new jersey oh totally you probably name a bunch of retailers that 
haven't been, you know, that Caldor and a bunch of other folks yeah, that are Caldor, all, like, oh. in New Jersey, right? Wow. I haven't heard yeah. Caldor in a while. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that are no longer there. So you, so we were the, we were, the, I started as a merchandiser and my job was to, I, I must've hit every single mall from upstate New York, Connecticut, Western Mass, all of Vermont, um, for three and a half years between from college through my first job was as an account service rep. I'd go into stores. If a band was touring, I'd have put up their posters and make sure there was records in stock, make sure they're on the end cap, give stuff for in-store play. Um, you know, I had to take inventory. I had to make sure, you know, we were paying for end cap space or whatever it might be, or on that, the new release wall, make sure the strawberries chain, which was like 150 stores on the East coast out of Boston, that they had three copies of that first Mariah Carey record or Celine Dion, or, oh my God, just goes on and on and on. And, and then later as a sales rep, I was, I was, you know, sat down with a buyer and had to go through a new release book and say, all right, this is, um, you know, this is the new record that's coming out from so-and-so. And what was interesting about that is what really learned, the biggest lesson I learned was going from sales to a label was when I sat there as a sales rep, if I didn't get all the information from my label rep about a record, I couldn't sit down with a buyer across from, you know, with a buyer from whether it was Best Buy or a regional chain or whatever it was, was an independent store or a wholesaler, one stop, they call it. Um, because there was so many records I was selling. I was selling classical. I was selling country. I had to have info and you had a one page sheet. They would call a one sheet. And that was your info on that record. Oh, wow. And the, and you, you also you have to know too the buyer that I was meeting with that I had 45 minutes every Tuesday with he was also seeing Warner Brothers he was saying the indie labels so if I didn't have that info I would just be like all right man I'll have to get back to you on this and very often it was tough to get back and you kind of knew as well what the priorities were and I also learned how depressing it and how bummed out it can I would get when a band that I really really loved was not going to be a priority for what a million different reasons. Because by the time you got signed, by the time that record came out, there could be a hundred different things that changed or went awry or didn't happen where, yeah, we, you know, you got the advance, you recorded the record and for a bunch of different reasons, label regime changed, band members, changed, whatever, and it wasn't a priority. And you would sit there and go, yeah, this isn't, you know. Just taking like two or three of these, and can we talk about can we talk about that for a second? Because that's yeah. always it always intrigued me. So you you know I was an avid reader. You know I was just like you. Like I would I would love to read. You know Circus Hip Prater. You know Rolling Stone. I, I'd love to just immerse myself. And and this is really before internet, right? So the magazines is where you got the information. And I would watch. You know you know you know interviews on MTV and other stuff like that. And and I would be so interested in you know, the bands I liked. And then you'd hear the stories like, oh, well, you know, the A&R guy, you know, you know, got fired or, or this department downsized or the guy that signed us wasn't there anymore, you know, and then everything kind of went south, right? You, you know, you hear those stories a lot. So I, I wonder, and I was always curious about this, is there like a certain amount of bands that a label will have on their label? Like we, here's our 25 that we want to push. And when somebody leaves the, you know, the, the a department, 
like that is that really the game changer that that will a band will get pushed or not because a new guy comes in and is like or new girl comes in and goes ah you know what I, I don't think this record's gonna go anywhere or like I, I they didn't do anything on the last record and, and we're gonna look at these guys or, or you know this band next like how does that really work I mean there could be a bunch of different reasons um you know that a and r person of which we the a and r people were like they were at a whole different level you very rarely saw them you did at least from a lot of, at least a distribution sometimes you, you got to know them when you worked for a label um when i did sales and marketing for labels um but at the distribution end of things you didn't really see them but the a and r person your champion there or a product manager they could leave and for whatever reason, you know, for that reason alone, sometimes it just might not be happening. There was never a set number that I recall that we said, okay, we, it's, it's, we have 20 records this quarter or whatever it might be, but it was, you know, it's a business, man. And if you had a, you know, if something was breaking, if you, if something was breaking, for instance, that was a real left field hit all of a sudden, like real quick story here. Um, I worked for MCA records, which was, did not have a lot of hits when I was there in the beginning, uh, when I was there. And then we had a kind of a dry spell. And then all of a sudden a station in Hawaii started playing the Shaggy record. And then it just exploded five months after the record came out and um, it just exploded. Well, that kind of, that got all the attention from the label. And there was other records at the time where, you know, your promotion staff going to radio they got to keep the they got to keep the spins up on you know x amount of records this record could be shag could be mariah whatever it might be especially in the pop world um and so those other ones just might not get that attention there's only so much bandwidth it's also also only so much money out there as well to put for promotion and you know the other thing too a lot of it is you hear a lot of bands say this and i remember I didn't really understand in the very beginning when I when I was younger reading in the magazines like we were talking about when bands mentioned oh the timing was bad a lot of that really is timing you know they uh, they got on a tour at the wrong time or they didn't get on a tour band member leaves and they just it it didn't gel afterwards um, you know the timing could have been bad because it was a soft touring season they didn't get on the road on time or radio wasn't really into that style of music whatever it might be so. Yeah, I mean, it's a crapshoot. I I love that answer because it puts a little more perspective, uh, you know, on how I would view that stuff when I was younger and even like later on because now with the internet, there's so much stuff you can read if you want to. There's so many rabbit holes you can go down with that stuff because I think about, you know, could you guys predict music trend changes? And what I mean by that is like was there – was there a feeling that Seattle was going to take over like it did? Was there a feeling that this new metal thing was going to take off like it did? Like, you know, certain styles of music, like, could you guys, could you pivot and know like, okay, the eighties hair, I don't want to call it hair metal, but like, you know, the eighties rock type of stuff, you could kind of feel it was fading and here comes the new thing. If you know what I'm talking about. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, being out in the field the way where i was i mean and whether that was on the east coast or out in the midwest i mean you could you could sometimes feel it um when i was my when i was a account service rep going to retail and stuff like that i can remember being as i was in new england i was um i was in albany 
and okay. I was covering, you know, new, most new, a good portion of New England. And this is early '90s, and the jam band thing was really starting to take off, right? Mm-hmm. And as well as grunge and stuff. And you know, I don't think in 1989 or let's say 90, 90, 91 or so, right? Anybody looked out at the, you know, at the sea and went, "There's going to be this new big thing coming." It, I, I recall it. I would bet you, you know, the bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam were filling up in their home markets and people were talking about it before it absolutely exploded, which was like a big thunderburst. My analogy, my uh, example would be spin doctors because um, I remember going to see them in a club in Albany and um, they turned away about 150 people in a small club. And it was like the second time they were there. And then they came back the fifth time or the, whatever it was and going around. And so we had to leave these updates. There was no email on this voicemail system. And you left an update, Hey, you know, to your, to the rest of the staff, what was going on? And you, everybody checked the messages. And increasingly it wasn't just me. It was other reps where there's something growing here, you know, band the, spin doctors are with this band and, and people are really into them more than say the band they're opening up for. So the, uh, there was kind of a, you could feel a trend brewing. You could feel something happening. And that's was when things got, could get really, really exciting because all of a sudden there was a lot of decisions made, you know, okay, we're going to, we're going to, and when a label would put the pedal to the metal, there would be a big meeting. And it was like, you got your marching orders. Like we're going to put, we have to put out X amount of records within 30 days. It's a full court press. Every dumb analogy you want to use for it, for, you know, we're bring, we're rushing this track to radio right now. There's something happening right here in this regional market, and we're gonna we're gonna you know just go nuts on it. And so you could feel things moving from a regional perspective. Whether that could, you know, I, where I was at as a 22 or 23 year old, um, I was getting feeling what was going on the trends based on the fact that the music that I was digging, nobody was playing the new rat record. Well, I loved it, you know, right, right. I mean, or, or a kiss album or whatever it was, or, um, you know, the David Lee Roth record in 94, you know, I mean, so that I could, you could sense things were going as a fan and just as a huge music nerd and a music lover, but you, you felt it too in the business as from a, from a very local level. If that I love made that, any sense. <laughs> I, no, I love that you bring that up too, because how I think of it, I've lived on both coasts, right? And when I lived on the East Coast, it seemed like the jam band thing like you're talking about, I feel like it's a regional thing where it's really big in that neck of the woods, like your fish, you know. Um, I remember seeing Blues Travel opening it up for Allman Brothers in 92. You know, the, those type of bands always seem to be bigger. And, they, you know, obviously Blues Travel had a couple big hits that were, you know, national. But I always feel like, you know, you don't hear about fish playing, you know, Wisconsin, you know what right. I mean? Like they, yeah. they, they, they do like, you know, the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Vermont, you know, that neck of the woods and that, and that's that type of thing. And I guess after you go further regional, it goes national, right? You know, I, I mean, that's probably an obvious thing to say, but it, it, I always wonder like if you could feel those, those things happening where you're like, this is going to be the next thing. Like, do you remember any bands that you were, that you were working with where, like you, you know, specifically like, okay, the label's really pushing this band hard back in that, that time period. Yeah. There was a good number one. I just comes to mind when I moved out here, uh, corn was one of them. Yeah. Uh, when I moved out to Minneapolis because that new metal thing was taken off and, and was really starting to bubble under and, and you saw bands like Limp Bizkit and other folks just starting to blow up and corn just, they were so different at that time compared yeah, to so many other things, so different. And 
I think that first record probably took, if I recall, probably took forever to go gold. Yeah. And, but they were touring relentlessly. They were coming back in a 16 month time span. They were back in a marketplace three times. What you needed to do, they got on the right tours. I mean, that was one that, that I, I can recall um, just that one felt really good, you know, cause these guys were working their asses off and they would do anything you needed, you know, they would do anything for you. You need them in a the store, they'd be out there for you. Um, you know, there was, uh, there was bands that you could feel something bubbling for a long time as radio picked up. When I first started, the, when I first started for MCA records, um, closing time, semi-sonics closing yep. time. Oh yeah. Had been out for a while, but it was just starting to get some airplay. And you were starting to see really fun things. Like I specifically remember the radio rep in Chicago got this, got the CD single to, um, it was either the Cubs or the White Sox. So when the relief pitcher came in, they would play closing time. Oh, you know, the how closer. cool is that? And yeah, st- yeah. cool stuff like that. And it, I remember it was, it was, God, what was that? Spring of 98, I think it was. And it was just starting to, just starting to move. And, and, you know, for a record that had been out for a while, for a band that, you know, I, and what was that their second record they'd paid their dues you know trip shakespeare um and i'd been out here four years in minneapolis and kind of got the lay of the land of that scene and they were local minneapolis folks so you felt that locally but you also saw what it was happening nationally that's amazing yeah i, lo- I love those type of stories like i always hear about collective soul was the band that broke up and had to get back together because yeah. things started like they got ended up getting signed after they were broken up essentially, which I thought was a crazy story. The blind melon story. I don't know if you saw that documentary. Um, it's a really good documentary. The new one that came out about Shannon Hoon, probably about a, a year or two ago, I guess. Um, they only had like six or seven songs when they ended up getting signed. So it was like, they had to like scurry to write tunes, you know, and obviously they had opportunity with, uh, I, I think it was Shannon Hoon's sister knew Axl Rose or something like, yeah, yeah there, was, there was an Axl connection, right? Yeah. There's a big Axl connection because Shannon Hoon's in the don't cry video. Right. That's before right. Before Blind Melons, anybody, right. Which, yeah. which I think is interesting. Uh, any bands like you, you mentioned the toe of the wet sprocket. Was there any bands that you ended up like getting behind, like really liking you know, that maybe you didn't like or, or bands that weren't on your radar that you really like started to get into from, you know, working label, label stuff. Uh, um, man, that I, that I did, you know what I tell you, I didn't in the, I am blink One Eight Two was on MCA records and there was a lot of, um, I knew them from the first record. I didn't work for MCA then. Maybe I think I came, I think it was after the second record. And, um, I just wasn't into a lot of that pop punk stuff. Right. I kind of just, I, I, I wanted guitar solo still. I, I, by my own admission, I didn't give it enough. It's, it's funny because so many of those songs have great choruses, you know, Absolutely. and I'm a, I'm a hook guy and I love pop stuff and, and uh, you know, power pop, especially three, a good three chord, you know, uh, three chords and a cloud of dust, so to speak. And um, I didn't really, and then, you know, and then I saw him live and, and, you know, kind of listened to their music more and heard this, them, you know, some people might think it's, uh, you know, it's an oxymoron, but they really grew musically. I, yeah, I, no, I, they I did. Think, they You're really totally right. did. That third record re- was, um, and I'm, God, I actually have a plaque behind me. I need to look at, uh, yeah, it was just called Blink-182. That third record with the X, the smile on the X and stuff with I Miss You and some other songs. 
I mean, they really took a chance style-wise. It was much different than, say, their first one. And and you can hear, feel that progression to take off your pants and jacket and then that one. So I really kind of dismissed a lot of those bands in the beginning. And Blink was one of them. And I was like, I dig this. <laughs> you know? Did you, so. I know this is going to sound crazy, and it's almost like similar to the question I asked, but maybe not in a way. Did you have an aha moment from a band where, like, everybody's like, you know, this band, this band, and then you had like the aha, oh, I get it now. I turned into a huge Not A Surf fan. Okay. I think they're one of the best bands out there. The first album or two, I, I, I'm I, still not a fan of that song, Popular. That whole mid-90s thing, there was a lot of those bands I just all lumped in my mind together. Yeah, totally. Right? I agree 100% uh, where like there wasn't like a, what, they didn't stand out enough where like, you know, certain bands you just knew, you know, you see Metallica, you know what Metallica looks right, like, you know what, right. and there's a lot of those bands that just get lumped in where they all sound kind of right. similar. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and Gin Blossoms, Goo Goo Dolls, although the first two rec- Goo Goo Doll records, three records were very punky, I Punk-ish, think. The first yep. two records, yeah, and they were fun, and I dug them. Um, there was a bunch of those bands. Didn't like Not A Surf. Saw them maybe on the third, second or third album and was maybe the fourth album. It was kind of late to the game there. And I was like, I am never going to miss this band again. I went back and dove in everything and I get every album they get on the moment it's out. I see them every time they come to town, but yeah, then I remember seeing them live. I'm like, these guys are great live. Um, yeah. that was, it was like, I was, I, you kind of get sheepish a little bit when you're like, Oh, now I get it. You know, I, I'll never pretend I was the hippest guy on the block. Right, you know, right. I, I was, you know, I still crank. I, I always believe there's no, if you dig it, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. You know, I like a that song's a good song. I like that. I think that's, I think that's important too, because I know one of the things that's interesting, especially with, you know, our country is um, it's very easy for people to jump trends a lot where oh, it's yeah. like, oh, I can't listen to these guys or like this isn't, you know, it's almost like it's it's really weird to me. And I agree with your if it's a good song, it's a good song thing. And and I, I feel like some bands put out great records that just don't get heard. And nowadays, I think it's a lot harder. So if you were doing what you did back then with the labels, how different would it be? Do you know what it's like? Do you have still friends in the biz where they yeah, say what it's some like? Friends. I mean, it's although I can tell you. Uh, by the time I left in 2011, even before that, early 2000s, I remember going to a convention and saying to my boss, looking around, I'm like, you know what? I know more people that used to be in the record business than are in the record business now. And um, I survived a lot of layoffs. And I wish I was still in the business. I Actually, I wish I was in the business in a way where I was just not able to do so because of family obligations, different things. But I wish I got more into management and marketing. I was doing an indie thing for a while. And, you know, when you're divorced with a kid and a mortgage and child support, you need a gig. Um, And, you know, a small company you're working for is going under. That's how I ended up in book publishing. I mean, that's how there was a marketing manager gig. I'm like, I can do this. I need like. Need a job. I like, can't move. You know. I, right, I, right. You got to go and now. I did, and <laughs> I, a lot of people I know set up a shingle and were able to, you know, take the rolodex and do some independent, you know, do consulting or independent marketing firms. Some really good people out there. Um, I would. I think most of those people, one, they've got a great drive, an entrepreneurial drive, which sometimes I, I've often questioned. I have, but also they had a second income with a spouse, or they were at a point in their life where. You know, they didn't, uh, you know, maybe they didn't have kids or the kids were out of the house or whatever it was. I'm not making excuses. It was just, I just, I was, for me, it was always about keeping a roof over my head. I, I'm not a risk taker. So, and that's kind of a regret I have where um, I wish I was still doing things. But at the same time, though, 
it just seems really, really harder than ever to try yeah. to find a niche. I mean, there's less places to play, you know, radio is an afterthought. Um, you know, if you think in on a Spotify playlist is going to mean something, it's so crowded out there now. I mean, when the number one record sells 25,000 cop, whatever is deemed a copy now, you know, a unit or whatever, um, it, on the one hand, people are consuming more music than they ever have before in their life. But how I are they cons- how are they consuming it though? This is something I brought up with a friend of mine, and I want to run this by you because I think it's an interesting uh, conversation point. Are we really consuming music in a way like we used to? Because I feel like there's so many choices and there's so much stuff that you can have at your fingertips that it's like you almost don't give the albums the real fair shot that you should give them. And I'll give you a great example of this. So um, Side Hustle, I DoorDash, right? You know, after after the pandemic, everything just changed in my life big time, right? Because I was a working musician. I still am, but boy, is it different now, right? So I have a car. I got my little Subaru that's got a CD player in it, right? And And the car Bluetooth does not like to hook up to my phone. They just don't like each other. So a lot of times I'll go hit thrift stores and I'll buy a couple CDs, right? And I'll listen. But the funny thing is I'm forced to listen to the CD a lot. And I think when we were younger, like we, we really listened to albums more. And I think with all of these like albums and songs and everything in our faces, I don't know if we really give the quality of time to fall in love with an album like we used to. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I'm still an album guy myself. I still, I don't, I don't put my, I got a thousand CDs over. I still have a CD player in my car. I absolutely love Spotify. I love YouTube. I devour that stuff, but I'm still, I don't hit shuffle, man. I want to, you know, I like the, I listen to an album, you know, there might be a song or two I skip over, but yeah, when I get into an album, I'm playing it. I want to, I want to really engage with it. And it's harder to do digitally. I'll give you that much, you know, but is that, is that us though? Like being old school? Compared I to so. like, because I hear about the attention span thing where like people will say, you know, by the third song on a record, it goes from like 75 to 50% to 30%. A lot of yeah. people end up getting to the end of the record because of how easy it is just to skip through well, stuff, right? A good example of that, you can see that in Spotify, the, the spins when you look at an album. There might be three tracks that get these crazy no- amount of spins. Right. The rest of them, it doesn't matter, right? Right. They, they're not getting a third of, of what these top three tracks are. And I mean, my son is going to be 21 in February and he, the Spotify rap thing that came out is we share an account. It's mostly all him because right. he uses it more than I do. And <laughs> excuse me. Um, and you know, his, it's a lot of rap. It's a lot of very hard rock stuff as you would expect a 21 year old guy would might probably listen to. Um, and but it's real interesting too, because I've seen him put together these really cool classic rock playlists. I think a lot of that is my influence. He of told course. Me, he, said, he, <laughs> he told me, he said, dad, when I was younger, until I got a little older, I thought Cheap Trick was as big as the, as the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. Because <laughs> you played it so like, much. <laughs> I'm like, well, my world, it, you know, they were for the most part. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting because um on the one hand, I think, especially young compared to when we were, I think kids, quote unquote, are consuming. They're certainly consuming it differently. They may be consuming as much. Certainly, I think a wide variety of genres. I didn't listen, really get into rap much until I was selling it. I okay. mean, there's, per your question earlier, I mean, there was things I kind of dismissed. It had a great hook, man. 
I would fall in love with a public enemy song or to live quality or whatever. Um, but it, there was some stuff I just, I wouldn't give it the time of day. I was very siloed where my son's playlists are, and I see, I see from his friends and just talking to them and other people, you know, they've got a wider variety of, they have such a wide variety of music at their disposal. It's not just the radio stations that are in your town. My future stepdaughter is a sophomore and she loves the 70s stuff she'll sing brandy you're a fine girl oh nice and then we'll also listen to bts stuff right mm -hmm. uh, k-pop or whatever and so i never had that wide array of genre no we we, we we did we couldn't per se right no, we right didn't have the and i always wondered that you know because you bring up good points in, in in that sense where you have an opportunity to be affected more in different styles of music i just wonder how how deep do you go into those you know what I mean? Like where I, I could tell you I'm a big Kiss fan, right? You know, I, I'm I'm, ma I'm a makeup Kiss a, a lot, and then I've appreciated like non makeup Kiss, but I Hotter Than Hell is my favorite Kiss record. I love the. Okay. I wish the production was better. Good lord, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> production is awful. But yeah. but like I remember getting Revenge when Revenge came out and just going, oh, this is kind of cool. This kind of has that, you know, or like, you know, I didn't get into Creatures and got into Creatures later on. I went, man, this is a good record. Or here, Lick It Up and realizing it, Lick It Up doesn't sound like the song Lick It Up. You know, it was, right. was kind of cool to be able to do that. They have that at their fingertips. But for us, it was like, all right, well, you know, I'd go to the record store and my dad would be like, all right, well, here's your, here's your uh, money for uh, cutting the lawn and doing all your chores. You know, you can be two pick two records. Don't and he'd say it in his Brooklyn accent. Don't let your mother see the album covers. <laughs> it'd, it'd be like you know Iron Maiden, Number of the Beast, or whatever. But you had to really choose and 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 say, all right, well, what do I want to pick up? And I think those records became your friends, where yeah, you didn't have a lot of them, so you played them, and they just kind of became in your DNA more, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I took my grocery store paycheck to one, our one little indie indie record store in town. You know, new release day then was a Tuesday for me. It was yep. Friday because that's when I got my paycheck, and I had <laughs> one, I had enough money to spend on one record. You know, and it was going to be Kisses, Look It Up versus something else, and I I spent a lot of time choosing full disclosure i right now have hot in the shade the hot in the shade cd in the car nice. so, <laughs> i love it I, always I love it. always lamenting it it's the sound is horrible they did it on the cheap and it's about three songs too long but that's that's another conversation <laughs> no it's great though man i love discussing music like that i love you know i love picking people's brains on on the industry and and obviously you've had a big career in the industry for many many years um let's talk about the book stuff yeah. So you get into that after. Um, what's what book publishing stuff are you working with? Like, is there specific genres, or is it across yeah, the board? So, or yeah, our company, the Quarter Group. I mean, we're all nonfiction. We do a lot of big coffee table books. Um, and when I started, I was hired to do um, and it made perfect. It was like, well, I can fall into this. The the imprints. At the time, we're doing sports books. I dig sports and cool. doing music and pop culture books. I'm like, I know that stuff. That's I can do that. Yeah. And it's funny because most of my job is publicity driven, which is a kind of a form of sales. So I'm doing publicity. So I'm pitching you to get an author on a podcast, you know, the yep. Alice Cooper book, let's say. And um, um, but I didn't do I didn't do publicity in the record business world, you know, but there's so many things that are transferable. And at the time I joked, well, I went from one dying format CDs to another one books. Right. But, <laughs> right. you know, but book sales are, are astoundingly resilient. I, they good. just have not been eclipsed by digital, by any digital format. Good. Good. Um, which is nice <laughs> for me. And uh, so 
Um, so yeah, I do that. I do um, transportation. I love cars. That makes that makes a good fit. And then, oddly enough, about seven years ago, eight years ago, um, they needed somebody to handle home improvement and gardening. Now I love working in my yard, but I don't know much about gardening. Right. But the interesting thing about that that I really love from a marketing perspective is these some of these authors are superstars in the world. So they have three hundred fifty thousand followers from YouTube, wow. and I love to create a marketing plan. I love doing things. I love. When I was a kid, I loved putting models together. I like look, love taking different pieces and parts and putting it into making something. So you have all these different parts. You got an author's YouTube, and we're doing Instagram Live. We're doing all these things. We got book reviews, next excerpt, interview. Put them all together, and let's. How do we? You know, my whole career, my whole job is is just the very definition of marketing is creating demand. That's that's what it is. How do you create demand? What, what tools do you have at your disposal? So we have all these things to put together. How do we create the demand for this? You know, so so yeah. So it's cars and transportation, and um, we don't do much, very little sports. Occasional those pop culture stuff. So um, we're uh, I'm doing books that are licensed from Marvel for the uh, new uh, Wakanda movie. Okay. Or uh, uh, um, some Disney stuff. Um, pop culture and translation uh and then the music books which we weren't doing we were doing when i first got there stopped doing now we really launched back into this in a big big way with um uh, talk about in a bit alice cooper at 75 this new book it's the third in a series we just put out elton john at 75 and previous to that bowie at 75 75 well, let, let's, talk, that, let's talk about, about that right now 75 years old yeah let's let's talk about that right now because right. i love i love that you know to me the internet probably has taken over a lot of that where it's information fast. You can get it. You can read about whatever you want. You can consume it how you want to. But I love the visual and just like holding a book and right. being able to go through a book and whatnot. So it's got to be exciting to get back into that stuff. Um, let's Can we talk about the new well, – let's talk about all three of those books real quick. If yeah. Well, yeah. I mean the bigger overriding picture of it all reminds me of a lot of things I loved about uh, music, in, partic in particular packaging – and, you know, I love box sets. I love deluxe editions. And that's what these books, that's what these books are. They're um, basically a biography of these, of, you know, these artists, but told in 75, because they're 75 years old, 75 uh, career defining moments. So it's Bowie Space Oddity. That's a chapter. And, you know, it's Alice Cooper from the inside or, uh, you know, Elton John playing his, the first uh, Dodger Stadium gig. Each, mm -hmm. And it's it's chronological. The other cool thing is, I mean, they're just uh, I'm biased, man, but we make really gorgeous books. The packaging, you want them on your shelf. You want them on your coffee table. You're excited to get them. And it reminds me of when I was excited. I used to be so yeah, I still buy CDs as I bet you do. Yeah. And when there's just a slip sleeve, you know, just, it's like, it's a drag, right? right? <laughs> yeah. I want to you know, I don't, but I want a good, you know, nice packaging. I'm excited to get that creatures of the night box set because it looks fucking amazing. Amazing. You know, yeah. just the work that went into that. God bless them. I'd love to hope they do that with a few more records. Um, so that's the kind of the equivalent of this. I mean, there's some, there's uh, a couple gatefolds in it, timelines and different things. There's, um, the, uh, Alice Cooper's got a gatefold. It's got a poster. It's got a glossy photo in it. That's never been before published. Oh, cool. Um, the author, Gar these are all written by credible, really serious music journalists in the case of Elton John 75, Jillian Gar, who's, um, uh, a writer in the Northwest. She's written books on Elvis, Nirvana, Hendrix, um, oh, nice. 
uh, Martin Popoff, who is oh yeah, prolific Metal author guy. ever. Yeah, yeah. I always joke around that at the time we have this conversation, he might be finishing two books. <laughs> you know, <and laughs> Dude, he's fast, isn't he? <laughs> he's, but he's very knowledgeable too. Like very knowledgeable. He's incredibly knowledgeable. I love what he does. I love his podcast. And he will. And these books just aren't. You know, the the description will say they're a celebration, but they you know they will cover the foibles and the bad parts in a person's career as well because you know every defeat is lends itself to another triumph with so many of these artists right whether it's alice cooper overcoming you know severe drug and alcohol addiction and gary grass got a chapter in there where those 80s albums zipper catches skin and all that I'm he doesn't s- even rem- he doesn't even remember dada he doesn't remember doing those records I'm so right. glad you I'm so glad you brought that up because the one of the things that I want to ask him if I if I do get to interview him is um that space and time and you remember this too because you alluded to it with Cheap Trick it's like a lot of those bands just kind of got put out to pasture and then right around and I don't know if it was and by the way I'm I'm just throwing a plug in there I, I'm getting nothing from this but Rick Rubin broken record they talked about you know uh, or now it wasn't it was it was Rogan talking to Rick Rubin, but they were talking about the Run DMC thing and how the, you know, the Run DMC and the Aerosmith getting together. And, you know, he was trying to explain how, you know, basically there is hip hop is music and you could hear it like in walk this way. Cause it's almost like a rap song right back in the day. People just didn't kind of realize it. Right. But it seemed like there was that, I don't know if they started it, but that cheap trick record you were talking about, that was 88, I believe. You know, um, luxury, sure. And per- permanent vacation, I believe, was 80, 88, 87. 87. Records, yeah. But like, and then Alice Cooper, you know, with Poison, like all that stuff came right around that, that time period, didn't it? It was all around the same couple of years. And you saw the resurgence of those acts that kind of got forgotten in that, yeah. in, in the mid 80s. You know what I mean? You know what the irony is with that, Eric, is that, um, those bands, Alice Cooper, um, Cheap Trick, I'm thinking of Ted Nugent also, those bands that kind of took that nosedive in the early 80s, um, you can make the argument musically they, they did. I mean, you know, is anybody holding up Ted Nugent's Penetrator as one of his great records? <laughs> uh, you know, I love right. Tied Up in Love, but that's probably the only song on there, right? Um, I'll hold up those Cheap Trick records because I'm just a ridiculous you know, fanboy at times. Uh, I can't say I'm always a fanboy, but you know, um, Alice Cooper, all those, a lot of those folks, they were really visual. You know, the big part of their appeal was just the Alice Cooper, of course, man, his yeah. shows the visual kiss is another one, yeah. you know, but I think those, a lot of those bands all dovetailed uh, into what I call the fast times of Ridgemont high moment. And that is remember when Damone goes, what do you, the, you know, the charisma of Robin Zander, Rick Nielsen, he's trying to sell the girl, cheap trick tickets she goes ah that's kid stuff that's exactly what happened you can't blame mtv kids i got budokan on a track when i was in seventh grade or whatever it was you know i mean yeah i stuck with them but for so uh there was a period of time where i didn't you know i mean yeah things change people grew you know kids people you know sound certainly change kiss and cheap trick and, and alice cooper named those three right there there's sound their albums from record to record changed dramatically the first, those first, the first three years, first three or four albums into the eighties. Right. I totally agree. Um, yeah. And so the irony is that they were so visual, but they had so much trouble early in the eighties. Um, you know, in Alice's case, it was certainly, there was substance abuse and same with Aerosmith, Aerosmith, another, you know, they, 
I mean, this wasn't Black Oak, Arkansas, man. You know, I mean, St- uh, Steven Tyler was, uh, you know, in 16 Magazine too, right? I mean, yeah. so, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were all visually appealing bands. They weren't Boston, let's say, you know, or Ario Speedwagon or whatever it was. Um, so the fact that they had trouble in the 80s in the beginning, um, you know, it just was a whole confluence of factors, I think. It's interesting. I, I, I'm looking forward to talking to him about that time period of Alice Cooper because, you know, really the late eighties kind of saved Alice Cooper. And and, and again, and, and it was partially MTV, right? Poison, yeah. Desmond Child, a, yep. a, a, a real hook song, yep. a song with a great hook. Um, yeah. And for a lot of those bands um, and Gary Graff, the author of Alice Cooper in 75, I mean, um, you know, he's from Detroit. So, I mean, he, you know, he's been writing in the Detroit music scene for decades. Um, you know, He's lived through all that, <laughs> you know, saw it firsthand without. Uh, Do you think also another thing I think that helps, and I, I know it helped with the grunge scene. Do you think people like Slash playing on Alice Cooper records and some of the other 80s guitar god guys playing on those records and, and saying what they were influenced kind of helped that resurgence again for those type of artists? Uh, to a degree. I mean, for me, I would have bought those records anyway because I was fans, right? I don't sure. know. Um, you know, did a Guns N' Roses fan run out and bought by uh, the Hey Stupid record because Slash was on it? Maybe, eh, maybe, possibly. You know, um, there was a lot of guys on that record though, right? Wasn't Vi on that record? Vi was on it. Satriani yeah. was on it, I believe too. Yep, Satriani. Um, was Zach Wild? Maybe I don't. I don't know. Maybe not. But it, there was um, quite a bit of people on that record though. Yeah, yeah. He brought. They brought it. That was a follow up to that the Trash record with Poison on it. Yep. So. Um, but yeah, so that's, um, you know, for, I love these books because these are exactly the kind of books I would buy because they're different. They're not just kind of a, a history. It's taking a different angle, a different approach. As fans, we pretty much know the history. We devour this stuff. We talk about this stuff all the time. Um, you know, and a lot of people don't. So if they want to delve a little bit deeper, uh, they're going to have a great perspective given to them from these authors. Um, and just, it's also not just all music as well. I mean, this covers, uh, you know, Alex's passion for golf and what it's meant to him, uh, and poker, because I know he, he's always playing poker when he comes to Reno. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, golf and his charitable work yep. and different things like that. And so, uh, you know, it, it's, it, they're really complete biographies just told in a really unique way and then in just fantastic packaging. Oh, that's awesome. And I, and I think that's kind of the wave of the future for a lot of artists also. You know what I mean? Where like uh, Allison Chains just did a humongous box set for Dirt, which I think is just one of the best records of the 90s. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the way to help those bands still sell stuff. You know what I mean? Where in a day and age where everybody's just down, you know, listening to it on Spotify or Apple Music, it's like, hey, let's give the fans you know, we know a certain core of fans will buy the, these packages. And I think that, you know, because it goes back to like, why are people buying records again? You know what I mean? Is it the sound? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But is it the tangible holding something, looking and reading things while you're listening? Like the, the big fold out for Kiss Alive too. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like listening to the records. I mean, there's just something special about that. Somebody was saying something like, you know, you know, if I have a record and I put a record on, it's an experience if I'm having people over compared right. to if I put a CD on, it's not the same. And I thought that was a really interesting, interesting concept. Um, I want to talk to you about the DLR cast, if you don't sure. mind. Um, I yeah. do not miss an episode. <laughs> it is, whether I'm on my bike or I'm walking, I'm always listening to you guys every time you drop a, 
episode. Um, I love how much deep dives you guys go into that show. Um, so for the listeners that don't listen, and hopefully I'll convert some of you guys on this podcast, um, it's basically all about Diamond Dave and uh, you and Darren host it together. And you guys really deep dive with a lot of, you know, Darren's PI work. He gets I, all these great, like, you I know, was, this, this guy was, this guy was a tambourine player in this one video or in the no holds barbecue. Yeah. And like, it, it, but it's amazing the stories you guys unearth. So I got to ask real quick, cause I don't know if I got this from Darren. How did you guys start the podcast? So it's a funny thing. Um, Darren's a music uh, entertainment journalist. And so I'd been pitching him books for, for ages and sending him review copies and he'd be writing up stuff. And, and we were chatting on email or whatever, and turns out he's a big Dave fan, a big fan. We we're going back and forth on some arcane thing, maybe about, I don't know. With him, it might have been Sonrisa Savai, the, 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 the Spanish version of him smile. And yeah, he absolutely loves that. He, I mean, he Yeah. And and we were having this conversation. I and I said to him, I I said, that's a this is a podcast, it's gonna be a podcast. And you know podcast really i had a podcast separately and it's no longer out there you know after after 150 200 episodes one you need a niche i mean you can't just one guy covering the pop culture universe because my interests go i i should i should have started a cheap trick podcast ages ago i don't know why i didn't think of it for goodness sakes you know there's still time yeah (laughs) well there there is there is one out there um that's they don't do a lot of episodes anymore but um uh but you know like you're you got a focus just on music, right? I mean, and, and there's a lot right in there. Right. So um, I don't know. I was like, I don't think there's any, there's a, there's not a, you know, there's a Van Halen podcast or anything about Dave. And we both agreed that Dave's solo stuff really gets short shrift, right? There's, and um, after the first two records, let's say. And so um, that's really kind of how it started. We're like, this could be a podcast. And then we go, "Eh, how about we call the DLR cast? He's like, that's cool. I'm like, I found some clip art, put the logo together and off we went. And the great thing about Darren is that, you know, him being a PI, which I didn't know in the beginning, right? My God, man, does that help us in a huge way? He's digging up stuff that unclaimed funds and non-disclosure agreements and stuff that's not, you know, didn't get the right publishing credits and all this stuff. I mean, it gets pretty arcane, but it's a lot of fun to talk about. Having said that, you know, it's it, it's a challenge sometimes. I think we need to do some deep dives more into the music, which was, may have been the original plan. Some of the music stuff, but um, and we'll keep finding things. But you mentioned the rabbit hole, like Dave sings in a Van Halen song. How deep does that rabbit hole go? We're finding that out. There's never a shortage of things to talk about, and we you know we talk about Dave and also you know in regards as well to Van Halen and. You know, it's interesting because even though it's a DLR cast, there's not a lot of activity with Dave, but generally every two or three weeks, like clockwork, there's a quote from Sammy or something, you know, always, always that, you know, will might lend it will probably lend itself. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, Darren's roped in some amazing guests. They're fun. Just uh, it's a lot of fun to talk about. And I think Dave has, there's going to be an appreciation more for Dave outside of the image. There really is, but um, especially the last, you know, few years or so, whatever. He's, it's just, it's just been some wackadoodle shit sometimes. You know what I mean? I don't think he's done his reputation any favors over the years. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I think he needs some humility, some humbleness, and I think uh, maybe some Ridlin. I'm not sure. I mean, 
<laughs> the Rogan interview and stuff like that. And so, like we always say, you know, we're fans, but we're not fanboys. I mean, I always say it's like, and maybe the same thing with you. When your heroes do something where even you have to go, ah, shit, really? Those cringe moments, man, they kill you. At 55 years old, they still kill me. Why does this chick keep me up at night? And what You guys bring up great points, too, because when you deep dive stuff, there's there's always that, like, does he not have a publicist that's like, Dave, not a smart idea to do this. Dave, not, I mean, I, I compare, and, and this is interesting, and Darren is a wrestling guy, so, you know, yeah, he, would, he, he would get this if he listens to this episode. Dave Lee Roth and Ric Flair, to me, are almost on the same trajectory, where it's like, what are you guys doing? Like you're tarnishing your legacies. You become a cartoon almost. It, it, it's it's a it's parody. To the, it's to the point where it's like, it's it's sad and embarrassing, and it's it's like I wish somebody that was invested into his career would be like, look, here's the thing, and it could be you can say the same thing about Van Halen. It's like a lot of the people that love your band want to see stuff from the beginning. They want to see stuff. They would love. They I would pay for box sets that had the, the Oakland eighty one. If you had, if they had the whole show, I'd pay for that. I would pay for Billy Sheen to to release the eighty six. You know, um, oh. multi multi camera angle, Eat 'em and Smile tour. I mean, I've seen Detroit. I've seen some of the other ones on yeah. there where the crowds are in, is insane. The plane is insane. It would be so great to see a. Mo- I'm a big Randy Rhodes fan. It's one of those things where I wish they would release the footage of Randy playing with the pro shot stuff that they have that they say they don't have. Like, I wonder, I wonder why they don't have people more entrenched into understanding what the people that will pay the money want, because I don't want to hear, you know, dance the night away 2022 version. I don't, I don't want to hear it. It, it, Like, like and I was telling Darren this and no offense to the players, because they're obviously great players. If you're playing with guys like that, they're going to be great players. But if you listen to the first record, right, and Ain't Talking About Love is a great example of this, and I am a musician, so I know a little bit about this stuff. Ain't Talking About Love is not played to a click on Van Halen 1. And if you listen to the version he did, it's too stiff because it's played yeah. to a click and you can tell it. And, that's, and you can tell. And if you don't know it musically, you're like something you know as a musician. Right. But you're right. Stiff is a perfect thing. The layperson is good it's just automatic you don't expect a perfect copy but you just go wow there's just something odd about it. you know just and that's it right the original you're never going to top the original you shouldn't even try but there's a swing there and thanks for bringing that up that's exactly it. it's not to a click and, and and the thing that's funny is it's like why not release outtake versions of that first couple and- of records why not release you know there's so much stuff that could be released instead like because they got the one guy who's who it was in charge, I think it was from the label, was in charge to like go through and put together the Van Halen box that that never happened. It's like, that's what people want. Now, the problem we have is with everything becoming free and easily accessible to get, it's like, why do we invest the money, right, to, to right. put this together for, is it going to sell, how many copies is it going to sell, return on investment, yada, yada, yada. But it's like with Eddie passing, you know, and, and, and people really wanting to get into more of what he did, you know, same thing with Dave. It's like the Eat 'em and Smile band. I was, I would, you know, I, I live in Reno. I almost went to that show at the Lucky Strike. I almost went down there. My buddy lives in the LA area. I almost went, and I think I would have been crushed if I went, knowing yeah. that I was that close to seeing that band perform live, and then because of the fire code and everything, right. it gets shut right. down. But it's like, but there's no follow up, and all those guys want to play with them. 
you know, yeah. and I don't know if it's just the voice isn't there as much as it used to be. You know, you know, all these singers when they get older, it's it's harder to stay in that range. It's, it's harder. harder. You know it what sure I mean? Is. I mean, it's a muscle, man. You know, I mean, it's going to wear, right? Um, you know, getting back to the Van Halen stuff as well as Dave, but I don't, I Van Halen in particular, I can't think of a band that has been so. I don't want to say. I maybe dismissive is the right word. One, I, I can't think of a band that a a rock band of that stature that has left so much money on the table from yep. a pure business sense, right? Yep. Um, not to mention the stuff that you know that it's almost dismissive of the fans. I mean, the website's been a joke for decades. Oh, I don't easily, even look yeah. at it anymore. I don't either. You know, thank God for the Van Halen news desk and other folks like that. Um, and I think part of it was they were all very very old school. Um. And even coming down to, I was thinking this the other day, you know, one of Eddie's big things is all about, you know, betrayal, right? He says that about Sammy and, you know, the, the, uh, some of the things that went on that, e the guy who had that text and email exchange that came out a couple months ago. Oh yeah. He felt yeah. really betrayed by Sammy. We know he felt really betrayed by Dave. You know, you can't do two things at once. At, when he, when he was coming up, lead singers for big rock bands through that time, they didn't do solo albums. Robert Plant didn't go off and do a solo gig while he was right. in the middle of Zeppelin. You know, Kiss did their thing, but that was as much as a commodity as anything else. But, you know, as far as his the, the bands that influenced him, the classic rockers, you know, Eric Clapton didn't go solo until Cream broke up, right? Right. Ozzy Same thing with Ozzy, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, Black Sabbath. Ozzy yep. didn't do a, a record in between tours, nope. do an EP. Totally and right. so, you know, I think maybe that was kind of part and parcel of that mindset. And then, let's face it, for the longest time, I think, there was so many, um, you know, money issues, um, contractual issues, legal issues, I'm sure. There's, um, but also, you know, I, you know, Eddie with the, with the personal demons that really took him out for the better part of 15, 20 years, maybe, you know, maybe from a creative standpoint, but also as far as kind of looking after the, you know, having, you know, having to have those kind of conversations, get creative with, with management and marketing people behind you and go, Hey man, let's, you know, and he, and at the time too, I don't, I think for a while he didn't necessarily want to look back on the past either, you know? So sure. I, it, I think it took Wolfie and that reunion to go, holy shit, this legacy is incredible. I want to honor it. And now I can do it. I'm clear and bright eyed. I'm sober. And I wish it would have just been honored more too, because like I can tell you right now as a teacher, let's say before Ed passed, I didn't teach a lot of Van Halen. You know what I mean? Like I was teaching a lot wow. of classic rock stuff, but it was ACDC. It was, yeah. of, it was Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, Iron Maiden, Metallica. It, it wasn't. It wasn't Van Halen. You Which know, is a and, shame, right? Well, and it's like that's the guy, man. That's the guy that changed the way people play guitar. If you really think about it, Hendrix did it, and Eddie Van Halen did it, really, only, and Steve Ray Vaughan right. did it. You know what I mean? There's certain guys that changed the the scope of like how, like for me, for the the Steve Ray Vaughan thing, I think Steve Ray Vaughan kind of gave the blues a shot in the arm that was needed. And and here's yeah. my hot, here's my hot take on this one, right? <laughs> if if you find a blues guitar player that um, grew up listening to Steve Ray Vaughan or like Steve Ray Vaughan was their gateway into blues in the last 25 years, you can't find a guitar player that doesn't sound like Steve Ray Vaughan. No, and you know what? I You made me think about this differently because prior to Stevie Ray Vaughan, what blues rock guys were getting any sort of airplay? I I tell you I wasn't listening to any of them and I mean and the guys that were the big guys weren't putting out anything that was exciting. No. It really. was there was there was no Young Guns. It was nope. Buddy Guy and BB King or whoever, right? And after Stevie Ray Vaughan, look who came in his path or was influenced by him, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Kenny Wayne Shepherd. 
who I had who I had on the show, and and we talked right. about Van Halen on the show, which was interesting. And he because uh, because Kenny Wayne toured with Van Halen a couple of times. That's I, right. I, I believe That's he right, did. Yeah. I believe I believe he did the Van Halen three tour. You know that the that Gary Sharon, but I know that he also toured with them during uh, during the Roth years. You know, I know he did one yeah. of those tours, and uh, he said it was the moments that the personal moments he had with Ed are the things that he remembered most from the tour that yeah. he cherished, which I thought was I thought was really interesting. Let's do a couple more quick questions. I'll let you get out yeah. of here. Um, so, uh, what was the biggest surprise you learned about David Lee Roth, or just anything David Lee Roth in general, by doing the podcast? Um. I'll tell you, just the the lockdown, so to speak. I mean, how everything is just in a vault. I mean, the amount of non-disclosure agreements out there. Um, um, and then just it, it gave me a different, you know, and just and we've had a lot of people on the show, make no mistake, but there's a lot of people also that are, have to go off the record and can't talk. And it's almost, it's very like, it's almost like an Elvis thing. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, uh, um, which I understand, to a degree, you know, I mean, there's, he's not the first person to want to keep things close to the vest. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure anybody who works with Axl Rose is going to do it. There's going to be, it's going to be the same thing. Right. Um, and there's countless other folks, I think like that. Um, you know, one thing that stands out too, is that, um, it brings some frustrations I've had to light over the years with his career. One, um, certainly post Van Halen and just in this last year alone, it's like, you know, there, if there's so much new music in the can and you're such a creative guy, you're doing paintings, everything out else. And if you're supposedly doing music, why not put it out, get yeah. it out there, do it. You know, you, you, um, as a marketing guy and Darren, and I talk about this and you talked about with him so many different ways you can do this and get the fan base excited and make some and make money, which isn't a driving factor for him clearly. Um, you know, and that's a great place to be, I guess, if it doesn't have to be your sole motivation. He's not on but, a label, is he? No, no. So, but so it's as simple as going, "Hey, I'm going to write this new tune. I'm going to go through CD Baby, and then it just gets released to all the digital outlets." And yeah. here you go. Yeah, I mean the the, the songs that uh, from the John Five semi-acoustic sessions that came out earlier, you know, that were recorded anywhere from ten to fifteen years ago or whatever it might be. So ongoing debate with the timelines and everything. Um, you know, that stuff just popped out, right? Yeah, I a couple tunes, and then now and then. And then it just stops, you know, he's so mercurial, which, you know, it confirmed a lot of things for me. Um, so that was a surprise. I didn't know Dave had a lot of money outstanding sitting there. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unclaimed. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, man. Did, did you find, um, here's another question I like asking people. Did you find it harder to listen to Dave after all the stuff you've done with the podcast, or do you still listen to the music the same way? Um, I think I still listen to the music the same way. Sometimes I can be a fanboy. You know, I'll get real, I, I can get pretty defensive. You know what it's made me do? It's made me go back to, I, I'm really weird a lot of times with, with most of the time with music. Like I have probably, I know, you know how Spotify does a rap and you know how many times you play something. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never kept counting the amount of times I still pull out a different kind of truth or even the Tokyo Dome record. Cause I, I always want to hear what my favorite acts have done most recently, mm-hmm. lately. And I have listened to a different kind of truth more since it came out than the Van Halen catalog, you know, in this time frame, right? Since 2012. Yeah. Um, you know, I've gone back every now and then I'll just fall in love, but not, not re-fall in love. But a couple of years ago, I was like, I just, I hadn't pulled out 1984 in forever. 
And I was like, oh my God, man, I forgot how much I loved Drop yep. Dead Legs because they put it back in the set list in 2015. It was like, holy shit, this, you know, that's a deep cut. Yep. Um, and so I'll, I'll, we'll go back to those records. I've also gone back and, and kind of, I forgot how much I loved uh, For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Maybe the one, one of the, maybe one of the best sounding Van Halen records next to A Different Kind of Truth. I think I don't disagree with you. Best Sammy sounding record. I believe Best Sammy sounding record. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I've kind of reappraised that. Um, I still have trouble getting into Van Halen three. <laughs> so, you know, that's an interesting record, right? Because it's, it's, I've heard it be, be the Eddie solo record. And there's supposedly a bunch of talk that Ed played a lot of drums on that record Ed played all the bass. I have a, I have an interesting theory and, and uh, people listen to the podcast can go check this out. If you listen to summer nights by Van Halen, Michael Anthony's not playing bass on that track. And I apologize to you, Michael Anthony, if you did. But if you listen to right before he hits the chorus when they sing Summer Nights, there's that cool little right? And it goes into that. The bass doubles the guitar there. Michael mm-hmm. Anthony's not playing that bass part. I love getting a musician's perspective on this stuff. You know, because t- we've had I'm, musicians on the podcast before, and it's like we got to have you on to talk about this stuff. Because oh, dude, I, I would I love to the- be on your show, man. I I am a a lot of times I'll send messages to Darren like, hey, this is that. Hey, he did this. Hey, he did that. I, I get on. I didn't nerd out over it because I I like the nuts and bolts of things. I mean, I I saw I saw Roth on uh, the A Little Ain't Enough tour, and uh, in New Jersey at Garden State Art Center. And it was was that with was that with Joe Holmes? But yeah, I do, okay. but I do not know the other guitar player. But I remember there being two. There were going, two. Well, when I that's interesting because when I saw him up in Albany, by that point the tour was was on its half legs. It was with Extreme and Cinderella, and that all was we had what was I saw. One guitar player, and I think they just did like maybe two songs from that record. But there's a show from overseas where there, he does about five songs from the record, and he's got the rhythm guitar player and the keyboardist. <laughs> Yes, when I saw him in New Jersey, there was two for sure because I tripped out going, wow, he's got two guitar players playing. Because me being the guitar player going, wow, that's really weird. Like you got two players covering Vi and Eddie and Becker stuff. That's interesting. And we knew it wasn't Becker because of the ALS. But I, and I told Darren this too. I emailed him. I'm like, I do not remember who the second guy was. I know it was Joe Holmes, but I don't know who the second guy was. The second, and and I've Um, I've seen Roth a couple of times. Um, solo. I saw him before he reunited with Van Halen. I got to see him in Reno and I had really good seats. A friend of mine hooked me up and uh, then the security did an awful job of doing security. So we were basically front row for that show. And um, I told my buddy, this is probably 2005 maybe? The reunion was 2007? Seven, right. So this is probably 2005. And I look at my buddy, I go, he's going to rejoin Van Halen. Because the <laughs> whole set was Van Halen, except for just like Paradise. And he sounded really good. Like, and that, and I'll tell you one more funny story about this. I, 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 this is absolutely hysterical. So I was in a cover band at the time. It was pretty popular. And we were playing this uh, big casino in Reno. So they had a Kiss tribute band that was supposed to play. And uh, we were going to play after them. So I'm like, okay, cool. I get to go to the Dave Ross show and then I'll hightail it over to the casino and whatnot, right? So uh, we go to the show. We have a great time. I'm like, all right, you know, we got to leave. We got to get to the casino. We go to the other casino to play and the band hasn't even started. Like people are getting pissed off and whatnot. And, and they just really weren't a good tribute, kiss tribute band, but they kind of faked their way like pretending right like like gene gene simmons is like 140 pounds ace freely's 400 pounds like and they're, <laughs> and they're playing like another thing coming in the first set i'm like 
what the fuck is going on? Right. You know, and it was just a really weird <laughs> thing. So one of my buddies at the show hung out and party with Dave and gave oh me the, gave me the, gave me the Jack Daniels bottle autographed to me. Ugh. Yeah. And I'm like, God, I could have hung out with Dave and whatnot. And he was like, and, and my buddy told me, he goes, he was just really mellow and just like, just hung out. It, it, wow. There was no like, yeah. And I was like, man, oh my God, I can't believe I missed that opportunity, which cracked me up. Like, you know, but it's, it's, uh, I really knew he was going back. And I, I want to say that was about 2005, that show. And then 2007, they, you know, cause I saw him in 2008, I think. Um, and I, Dave's voice was really good then too. Like a lot of people rag on his voice, but his voice, he was solid. I saw him in Sacramento. Uh, Eddie didn't play so great that night, but Dave was, Dave was on point. I was very impressed. Yeah. I think objectively, you, you can't objectively say he was bad on that first reunion tour. I, no. he, I thought he was great. There was no forget the lyric stuff. Um, any of that stuff. I mean, he, he, you know, was it 1977 again? No. But what did you walk away going? Ooh, man, there was some tough spots. No, not when no, I saw he, it that not. when I saw it in 2007, uh, there was a couple of rough spots. I saw the different kind of truth tour. Um, but man, I'll tell you, the biggest thing I took away from all that, and especially after listening to that album and even the Tokyo dome is that, they they became a tighter band, I think, with Wolfie. I think they cared more with Wolfie because a it's a Van Halen in the band. Yeah. But Wolf was like very like, you know, pulling out the deep cuts. And I think it was oh, yeah. making the brothers have fun again, like playing those tunes. I mean, when I when I'm seeing them, they're playing so this is love. I'm like, are you fun? I mean, Fair Warning is my favorite Van Halen record. Oh god. Yeah. It's the guitar player record, right? You know, right. every guitar player, that's their favorite record, Van Halen wise. And I'm just going, holy shit, I can't believe some of these tunes they're playing on that. I was blown away, you know, yeah. and, and I think I, a lot of that had to do with Wolf. So, you know, I know Wolf will never listen to this podcast, but Wolf, thank you for, for, <laughs> for, for doing what you did because that was, that was the reunion that always was supposed to happen that always never could get jump started. And, right. and, it, and it took Wolf really was the guy that put that reunion. And really, I mean, there was a lot of rumors and stuff. He's 16 when he's starting on that tour. Yeah, uh, 15, I think. Yeah. Look, look, we know how good he is. And, and, and can we talk real quick about how he definitely has channeled his father playing with that Taylor Taylor Hawkins tribute concert? Oh, my God. You dude, close your eyes. Close it's, your eyes. It's, Ed. <laughs> yeah. it's Ed, right? You know what I mean? It's and, and he has that feel and whatnot. He's playing bass at 16. I know he yeah. is. Like I, I can tell he is and he grew yeah. and, and, and we didn't know how great of a voice the kid had either. You know? Yeah. You know, it's funny about that. Cause if there was one thing that was lacking on that first tour or two was, you know, he just did not have that upper range that Michael Anthony has, you know, which who does, who does exactly. <laughs> who does? Nobody. I mean? Yeah. You know, and the thing too, you know, but his voice is better now is what I'm getting at. Oh, right? dude, I mean, he's a, he's a great, he's, I love that mammoth record. Dude, phenomenal singer, man. I tell you right this right now, you know, a lot of people were bummed out about the Michael Anthony stuff. And I know them taking him off the cover was kind of lame. And then they put him they, back on, which is they really nice. Fucked him. <laughs> I they, hate to no, say it. they really did. I, I'll tell you something though. You know, us both being dads, I mean, you have the opportunity to play with your son. Man, I say that created. All, how, how do you not turn how do you turn that down? I say that yeah. all the time. I say it all the time, especially when people bitch about, you know. Cheap Trick and Bunny Carlos leaving and all that. And and there's totally, it is a different feeling band. Bunny's got a swing that nobody can match. But you spend your life on the road to spend like, you know, you've got more shows behind you than have in front of you to spend, you know, that as a dad, man, who would turn that down? You can't. Making music with your kid every night? Come on. Especially when your kid can. 
Exactly. You know, that's the thing. Got, when I he's mean, got he, the chops and, and that kind of musical ability and that passion, you, I, I don't begrudge Eddie for a second for demanding Wolfgang be in that band. I, I don't either. And like you said, man, like it, they became a tighter band. They cared more. And that was so exciting to see. Yeah. Um, before I let you out of here, let's, uh, let's promote what you got going on and, and any last stuff that you want to add. Yeah, well, let's see. We got the DLR cast still doing episodes out there. Um, and uh, you can find it on all your various podcast providers. We got that happening. Uh, and um, books wise, I mean, we got this Alice Cooper at 75 coming in February. So by the time you hear this, I mean, you can pre order it now everywhere. Uh, it's your favorite online retailer, whether it's Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com, but it'll be in stores February 7th, bookshop.org, all sorts of different places. Um, that's coming in February. After that, coming in March, there's a uh, uh, ACDC 50th book coming. Uh, and then there's a big celebration of Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon coming as well. Uh, I think that's coming in May. So we got some really cool music books happening there. And um, I was also involved, helped out. I uh, want to give a plug too to a really great band, my uh, great book about my all-time favorite band of all time, Cheap Trick, uh, a book uh, by a guy by the name of Brian Cramp. Uh, he did a book called, wrote a book called This Band Has No Past. And I became friends with this guy on Facebook and uh, to a cheap trick group. Turned out he was writing a book. I'm like, I write for a book publisher. And I got him in touch with this imprint, Jawbone Press. And at the time, we were distributing Jawbone Press. By the time the book, and so I was dealing with the marketing with it. By the time the book came out in September, they went to another distributor. Um, but he, it's one of the most research. If you like reading music biographies that are so well researched, I mean, this, it, this is from their formation up to about the first record, up to Budokan. And all the permutations and what this band did. And so, so there's that, that's out there. I mean, these are books that I would buy anyway as a fan, not just hawking for myself. So um, yeah, that's kind of what's happened. Excuse the shameless plugs. <laughs> and, and one other question I got to ask you before you leave, um, any thoughts of writing your own book? No. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a lot podcast. of work, right? It's, it's a lot of work. I mean, I've seen it behind the scenes. Um, I don't think I got that great of a story to tell, but, uh, I'd rather chat about it in real time. I don't know if I have the attention. I love to write. I used to, you know, uh, have a blog and stuff like that, but man, it's a, it's a time commitment. It, yeah. It's just such a time commitment. Just the I, editing alone. Right. Oh, I mean, yeah, it, it's, we, uh, I host a basketball podcast also called oh, cool. not my, not my house. And we interview a lot of guys that played in the ABA and NBA, you know, and, and coaches and, Whatnot. And a lot of these guys write books and I, I, we, we learn how long it takes to write books. And sometimes it's easily years and if yeah. they're doing it on their own and they're doing the, you know, the proofreading, the editing, the, you know, the pictures, the er, illustration, everything. I mean, it's a completely time consuming thing and really getting a book publishing deal is really difficult too. also. Right. Is that correct? Yeah, it can, yeah. it can be. And, you know, just like with music, you know, you can go the indie route, right. You can self publish, but um, that has its own pratfalls and difficulties and can get really expensive and um, it, you know, for little returns too. So, I mean, you know, you have to do it all sometimes as an author or as an indie band, you know, you have to, you have to be able to promote yourself. You have to be able, it's, it's difficult to be creative and also market yourself at the same time. So, I mean, it's, there's only so much time in the day and some people just are not good at, you know, they're not good at marketing themselves. They're not, it's just, it's, you know, it's an odd thing sometimes. I mean, people that are so creative just sometimes are not always good about shouting about how creative they are. 
It, it's true, man. It's the one thing I always say about guitar playing. It's like when I have students that are like, oh, my guitar is broke. This and that. Can you fix it? And I said, I don't fix guitars. And they're like, well, you play guitar. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you drive a car. Do you fix your own car? And they go, right. ah. Yeah, and it is go. true, man. Sometimes certain musicians, like, they just need to stick to the music aspect of it and have somebody come in. I've always felt like nowadays it's like bands should hire publicists and kids that are like, you know, three years in on marketing degrees at college and, and, and have them promote them. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. the record company thing is just almost a lost thing. Now it's like the biggest thing is you got to find ways to creatively get your music out there with all the algorithm crap now where it's almost impossible uh -huh. to reach people. It's like, it's just, you know, it's like the more barriers that happen where you're just at a point where you're like, how, I, I mean, at least in the eighties, early nineties, when I was playing music, you know, and trying to make it big, it was like you could see the forest from the tree and you knew like I do this, that, that, this, that, that. Hopefully we're good enough. Hopefully we have a little bit of luck and we might have an opportunity. Nowadays, yeah. it's like, you know, you got to do this, that, that. Oh, that algorithm doesn't work anymore. This and that. And you're buried and people don't see you and, and people don't buy music. So it's like, how do you, where are you going to record? Well, now you got to do it in a home studio. And it's, I feel bad for, for kids that are younger getting into playing music. It's like. Well, it's got to be frustrating, too, that somebody, you know, might blow, I mean, blow up on YouTube or TikTok with, you know, not to say, <laughs> with maybe not a lot of talent, right? Some might be really talented, but because for whatever reason, something went viral because of it. Um, and for the person who's been struggling for years, you go, what the hell do I got to do? Yeah, it's music's tough, man. It's not like being a doctor where you go to school and you study and you're good at your field and yeah. you get a job. I mean, music, uh, yeah. it's who knows, man. And that's always been that way. Um, Steve, it's awesome having you on the show today, man. I really appreciate how generous you were with your time. Um, I always love talking to music, man. And and boy, dude, you, you know your music. So I really appreciate you coming on mixtapes today. And uh, be safe out there. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun.